Chapter Twenty Five of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Twenty Five: How Sir Nigel Wrote to Twynham Castle. On the morning after the jousting, when Alan Edrickson went, as was his custom, into his master's chamber to wait upon him in his dressing and to curl his hair, he found him already up, and very busily at work. He sat at a table by the window, a deer-hound on one side of him, and a lurcher on the other, his feet tucked away under the trestle on which he sat, and his tongue in his cheek, with the air of a man who is much perplexed. A sheet of vellum lay upon the board in front of him and he held a pen in his hand, with which he had been scribbling in a rude schoolboy hand. So many were the blots, however, and so numerous the scratches and erasures, that he had at last given it up in despair, and sat with his single uncovered eye cocked upwards at the ceiling, as one who waits upon inspiration. "'By St. Paul!' he cried, as Alan entered. "'You are the man who will stand by me in this matter. I have been in sore need of you, Alan.' "'God be with you, my fair lord,' the squire answered. "'I trust that you have taken no hurt from all that you have gone through yesterday.' "'Nay, I feel a fresher for it, Alan. It has eased my joints, which were somewhat stiff from these years of peace. I trust, Alan, that thou didst very carefully note and mark the bearing and carriage of this knight of France. For it is time, now when you are young, that you should see all that is best, and mould your own actions in accordance.' This was a man from whom much honour might be gained, and I have seldom met any one for whom I have conceived so much love and esteem. Could I but learn his name, I should send you to him with my cartel, that we might have further occasion to watch his goodly feats of arms. It is said, my fair lord, that none know his name save only the Lord Chandos, and that he is under vow not to speak it. So ran the gossip at the squire's table be he who he might, he was a very hardy gentleman. But I have a task here, Alan, which is harder to me than aught that was set before me yesterday. Can I help you, my lord? That indeed you can. I have been writing my greetings to my sweet wife, for I hear that a messenger goes from the prince to Southampton within the week, and he would gladly take a packet for me. I pray you, Alan, to cast your eyes upon what I have written and see if they are such words as my lady will understand. My fingers, as you can see, are more used to iron and leather than to the drawing of strokes and turning of letters. What then? Is there aught amiss that you should stare so? Uh, it is this first word, my lord. In what tongue were you pleased to write? In English, for my lady talks it more than she doth French. E yet this is no English word, my sweet lord. Here are four T's and never a letter betwixt them. By St. Paul, it seemed strange to my eye when I wrote it, said Sir Nigel. They bristle up together like a clump of lances. We must break their ranks and set them further apart. Uh, the word is that. Now, I will read it to you, Alan, and you shall write it out fair, for we leave Bordeaux this day, and it would be great joy to me to think that the Lady Loring had word from me. Alan sat down as ordered, with a pen in his hand, and a fresh sheet of parchment before him, 
while Sir Nigel slowly spelled out his letter, running his forefinger on from word to word. "'That my heart is with thee, my dear sweeting, is what thine own heart will assure thee of. All is well with us here, save that Pepin hath the mange on his back, and Pommers hath scarce yet got clear of his stiffness from being four days on shipboard, and the more so because the sea was very high, and we were like to founder on account of a hole in her side, which was made by a stone cast at us by certain sea-rovers, who may the saints have in their keeping, for they have gone from amongst us, as has young Turlake, and two score mariners and archers, who would be the more welcome here, as there is like to be a very fine war, with much honour and all hopes of advancement, for which I go to gather my company together, who are now at Montalbon, where they pillage and destroy. Yet I hope that, by God's help, I may be able to show that I am their master, even as, my sweet lady, I am thy servant. "'How of that, Alan?' continued Sir Nigel, blinking at his squire, with an expression of some pride upon his face. "'Have I not told all that hath befallen us?' "'You have said much, my fair lord, and yet, if I may say so, it is somewhat crowded together, so that my lady Loring can, mayhap, scarce follow it. Were it in shorter periods—nay, it boots me not how you marshal them, as long as they are all there at the muster. Let my lady have the words, and she will place them in such order as pleases her best. But I would have you add what it would please her to know.' "'That will I,' said Alan, blithely, and bent to the task. "'My fair lady and mistress,' he wrote, "'God hath us in his keeping, and my lord is well and in good cheer. "'He hath won much honour at the jousting before the prince, "'when he alone was able to make it good against a very valiant man from France. "'Touching the monies, there is enough and to spare until we reach Montabon. "'Herewith, my fair lady, I send my humble regards, "'entreating you that you will give the same to your daughter, the Lady Maud.' May the holy saints have you both in their keeping is ever the prayer of thy servant, Alan Edrickson. That is very fairly set forth, said Sir Nigel, nodding his bald head as each sentence was read to him. And for thyself, Alan, if there be any dear friend to whom you would fain give greeting, I can send it for thee within this packet. There is none, said Alan, sadly. Have you no kinsfolk, then? None, save my brother. I had forgotten that there was ill blood betwixt you. But there are none in all England who love thee. None that I dare say so. And none whom you love. Nay, I will not say that, said Alan. Sir Nigel shook his head, and laughed softly to himself. I see how it is with you, he said. Have I not noticed your frequent sighs and vacant eye? Is she fair? "'She is indeed!' cried Alan, from his heart, all tingling at this sudden turn of the talk. "'And good? As an angel. And yet she loves you not. Nay, I cannot say that she loves another. Then you have hopes. I could not live else. Then you must strive to be worthy of her love. Be brave and pure.' fearless to the strong, and humble to the weak, and so, whether this love prosper or no, you will have fitted yourself to be honoured by a maiden's love, which is, in sooth, the highest guerdon which a true knight can hope for. "'Indeed, my lord, I do so strive,' said Alan. "'But she is so sweet, so dainty, and of so noble a spirit, that I fear me that I shall never be worthy of her.' 
by thinking so you become worthy. Is she then of noble birth? She is, my lord, faltered Alan. Of a knightly house? Yes. Have a care, Alan, have a care, said Sir Nigel kindly. The higher the steed, the greater the fall. Hawk not at that which may be beyond thy flight. My lord, I know little of the ways and usages of the world, cried Alan, but I would fain ask your read upon the matter. You have known my father and my kin. Is not my family one of good standing and repute? Beyond all question. And yet you warn me that I must not place my love too high. Were Minstead yours, Alan, then, by St. Paul, I cannot think that any family in the land would not be proud to take you among them, seeing that you come of so old a strain. But while the Sockman lives— Ah! By my soul! If this is not Sir Oliver's step, I am the more mistaken. As he spoke, a heavy footfall was heard without, and the portly knight flung open the door and strode into the room. "'Why, my little coz,' said he, "'I have come across to tell you that I live above the barbers in the Rue de la Tour, and that there is a venison pasty in the oven, and two flasks of the right vintage on the table. By St. James, a blind man might find the place, for one has but to get in the wind from it, and follow the savoury smell. Put on your cloak, then, and come, for Sir Walter Hewitt and Sir Robert Briquet, with one or two others, are awaiting us. Nay, Oliver, I cannot be with you, for I must to Montaubon this day. To Montaubon? But I have heard that your company is to come with my forty Winchester rascals to Dax. If you will take charge of them, Oliver, for I will go to Montaubon, with none save my two squires and two archers. Then, when I have found the rest of my company, I shall lead them to Dax. We set forth this morning. Ooh, then I must back to my pasty, said Sir Oliver. You will find us at Dax, I doubt not, unless the prince throw me into prison, for he is very wroth against me. And why, Oliver? Pardieu, because I have sent my cartel gauntlet and defiance to Sir John Chandos and Sir William Felton. To Chandos? In God's name, Oliver, why have you done this? Because he and the other have used me despitefully. And how? Because they have passed me over in choosing those who should joust for England. Yourself and Audley I could pass, cuz, for you are mature men. But who are Wake and Percy and Beauchamp? By my soul, I was prodding for my food into a camp-kettle when they were howling for their pap. Is a man of my weight and substance to be thrown aside for the first three half-grown lads who have learned the trick of the tilt-yard? But hark ye, cuz, I think of sending my cartel also to the prince. Oliver! Oliver, you are mad! Not I, i' faith. I care not a denier whether he be prince or no. By St. James, I see that your squire's eyes are starting from his head like a trussed crab. Well, friend, we are all three men of Hampshire, and not lightly to be jeered at. Has he jeered at you, then? Pardieu, yes. Old Sir Oliver's heart is still stout, said one of his court. Else it had been out of keeping with the rest of him, quoth the prince. And his arm is strong, said another. "'So is the backbone of his horse,' quoth the prince. "'This very day I will send him my cartel and defiance.' "'Nay, nay, my dear Oliver,' said Sir Nigel, laying his hand upon his angry friend's arm, "'there is naught in this, for it was but saying that you were a strong and robust man, who had need of a good destrier. And as to Chandos and Felton, it bethink you that if when you yourself were young, 
and the older lancers had ever been preferred, how would you then have had the chance to earn the good name and fame which you now bear? You do not ride as light as you did, Oliver, and I ride lighter by the weight of my hair, but it would be an ill thing if in the evening of our lives we showed that our hearts were less true and loyal than of old. If such a knight as Sir Oliver Buttsthorn may turn against his own prince for the sake of a light word, then where are we to look for steadfast faith and constancy?' "'Ah, my dear little coz, it is easy to sit in the sunshine and preach to the man in the shadow. Yet you could ever win me over to your side with that soft voice of yours. Let us think no more of it, then.' "'But, holy mother, I had forgot the pasty, and it will be as scorched as Judas Iscariot. Come, Nigel, lest the foul fiend get the better of me again.' Oh, "'For one hour, then, for we march at midday.' Uh, tell Aylward, Alan, that he is to come with me to Montabon, and to choose one archer for his comrade. The rest will to Dax when the prince starts, which will be before the feast of the Epiphany. Have Pommers ready at midday with my sycamore lance, and place my harness on the sumpter mule. With these brief directions the two old soldiers strode off together, while Alan hastened to get all in order for their journey. End of chapter 25